official K1 podcast, K1 Battlecast. You'll get news, fight reviews, and fighter interviews. And now, your hosts, Michael Shamero and Jonathan Shea. Welcome to another episode of K1 Battlecast, the official podcast of K1. I'm the voice, Michael Chevello, in Melbourne, Australia, and up north in beautiful Tokyo, Japan. It's me, Jonathan Shear. Jonathan, it's good to be talking to you again. I hope you had a Merry Christmas with the family. How do you celebrate Christmas in Tokyo? Well, you wait by the window and hope that the big, jolly man will show up and give you some presents. You know, my kids were asking me an interesting question the other day, and I'll need to get an answer from you. They were saying uh, that in Japan, Christmas is celebrated often by eating KFC. Is that true? Uh, this is true. They have a tradition of um, of eating KFC on Christmas. Um, how do they celebrate it in Australia, Michael? Well, you know, me coming from an ethnic background, it's it's lunch at my parents, it's dinner at my wife's parents' place, it's an Italian lunch, it's a Greek dinner, it's lots of food, it's presents under the tree. We always get a real Christmas tree every year. That's part of our family tradition. Um, but we do not tuck into the KFC. And I've got to say, Jonathan, when you say they have the tradition of KFC in Japan, does that mean you do not uh, devour a KFC bucket yourself? On Christmas that's Day? A, that's a very perceptive question, Michael. I do not partake in the KFC. No I'm, nuggets, um, no twisters, no, 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 no chicken no, breasts. None none of that. I um I think happy thoughts and entertain ideas for world peace and all that kind of thing in my heart. I'm not a I'm not a big celebrator of things like that, but I, that's just boring for people. You know, go out there, get some KFC and have a good time. Don't if I like remember me. correctly as well, in a week's time on New Year's, the Japanese tradition, now again, correct me if I'm wrong, is to all eat right. sober noodles and oh slurp, my gosh. slurp the noodle. And if you break the noodle mid-slurp, it signals bad luck for the year. Is that is that right? Okay, I don't know about that level of detail, Whether, I, but they do eat soba for sure. Yes, it's called toshikoshi soba, and it's supposedly meant to bring in a long life because the noodles are long, so you're hoping for a long life. Um, but if you break the noodle, I'll have to look into that and uh, give us the Examine breaking the noodle because I'm pretty yeah. sure I've, I've heard that. Uh, yeah, yeah, folks, if you're slurping the noodles, if you're doing the ramen, you're doing the soba for, for New Year's, do not break the noodle. Yeah, all right. That's, that might be why I've had such a run of bad luck over the years, Michael. I have been <laughs> I've been breaking the noodles. Do not break the noodle. <laughs> this is a quick K1 public service announcement. Our crack team of fact checkers did look into the soba eating myths and it is okay to chew them. Apparently, it symbolizes breaking ties to bad things in the previous year. So, don't be afraid to chew your noodles, people. And we really don't want people to choke to death because of a misconception. So break the noodles. Okay, now back to the show. You know, today, <laughs> Jonathan, speaking of breaking, we, we, we're going to, uh, how's this for a segue? We're going to talk about a man who broke tradition in K1. Do you like that for a segue? I love it. Only, only I can go from sober noodles on New Year's Day to breaking K1 tradition because we, we're talking about a guy called Mark Hunt. Oh and um, we're going to have a lot of fun with this because Mark Hunt, 2001 K1 World Grand Prix champion, an unexpected champion whose win in 2001 opened the door for the likes of Bob Sapp and Hongman Choi 
and a lot of non-traditional, you know, non-martial artists to make a move into K1 and uh, try their luck and try their test their power on the biggest stage of all. So we'll be talking about that. But right now, why don't we hop in the DeLorean, Jonathan, and we'll do our K1 Rewind back to the year 2001 and chart the epic rise of Mark Hunt. We're going back. We're going all the way back. Now it's time for K1 Rewind, where Michael walks us through an important event in K1's history. Now, you've said... Michael, that we'll be talking about Mark Hunt. And what episode in particular are we going to cover today? Yes, Jonathan, we are going back to October 8, 2001 at the Marine Messe in Fukuoka, Japan. And uh, important for a number of reasons. One of the lesser reasons is that it was my first time ever commentating K1 abroad. I'd commentated K1 in Australia, but this was my first time commentating K1 abroad and what a baptism of fire for me, because on that night, the K1 Rapid Charge Tournament took place in Fukuoka to qualify for the final eight of the K1 World Grand Prix. And uh, it was Mark Hunt versus Ray Seffo. Now, Jonathan, when I say Mark Hunt versus Ray Seffo, what comes to your mind immediately? One of the most electric showdowns between two men who would not back down i mean i i think of jaws of granite and the will to overcome an opponent those are the two things well you're not wrong because when when people talk about the greatest k1 fights of all time last week we spoke about mike zambides versus chahid being arguably the greatest k1 fight and kickboxing fight ever but usually people put this one in their top three if not their top to, if not for most people, number one, Hunt versus Sefo. Ray Sefo came into this Repercharge tournament as the runner-up from the 2000 uh, Grand Prix where he lost to Ernesto Houston in the final. So there was a lot of focus on Ray Sefo that this was going to be Ray's year to finally win the K1 World Grand Prix. He takes on Mark Hunt, a fellow Samoan, and at this stage, Mark Hunt has fought K1 internationally uh, just the one time against Jerome Labana in Osaka back in July 2000. Uh, Jerome Labana beat him quite handily. Mark Hunt had won a whole swag of uh, K1 fights at home. He'd become a two-time K1 Oceania champion, uh, defeating the likes of uh, Peter Graham, Andrew Peck, Nathan Briggs, Fadi Hadara, Phil Fagan, Ronnie Sefo, Ray's younger brother. Uh, he'd knocked out a lot of people in devastating form, but um, he, he was still greatly unknown. And this was Mark's first ever time fighting in Japan. And most people thought that he'd just be really cannon fodder for Ray Sefo to get through and qualify for the K1 World Grand Prix. What eventuated between these two, and mind you, this was a semi-final in a four-man tournament. What eventuated between these two was a slugfest the likes of which we've never seen before. Both men stood toe-to-toe -to -toe and threw their hardest punches at one another. And at one stage in the fight, both men deliberately dropped their hands to their waist, stick out their chin, and invite the other to tee off on them with as hard a shot as they can muster. You never see this in any other fight sport. You would never see it in boxing. You'd never see it in mixed martial arts. I've never seen it again, really, in kickboxing or K1 that someone would drop their hands, invite someone to tee off on them, take the shots, 
and then answer back with shots of their own. I think it was uh, was uh, Mark who did it first, and then Ray who who followed up and did it afterwards. The fight goes the distance, and Ray Sefo actually wins the fight and is declared through to the K1 World Grand Prix at the Tokyo Dome later that year. Mark goes backstage, gets dressed, has something to eat, and then officials go backstage and see Mark and say, we need you to fight again. Because Ray Sefo was so badly injured during the fight that he is having triple vision. Ray can't see properly. So Mark Hunt puts down his food, puts his trunks back on, the gloves back on, inserts the mouth guard, heads back out to the ring to fight again in the final. He goes up against Australia's Adam Watt, and as if he's eager to get back to his meal, Mark just dismantles Adam Watt, knocks him out in the third round. Actually, I believe it was a doctor stoppage in the third round, and Mark Hunt qualifies for the K1 World Grand Prix which is held on December 8th in uh, Tokyo, Japan, in front of, I believe, uh, 65,000 people at the Tokyo Dome. So we move forward to December 8th at the Tokyo Dome, and the lineup for this Grand Prix is one of the strongest lineups we've seen in years. It features old versus new, really. You've got the likes of Ernesto Hoost. You've got the likes of Peter Ertz in there. You've got Jerome Labana, but you've also got Nicholas Petas, Alexei Ignashov, and Francisco Filio, Mark Hunt, of course, is in there, and Stefan Leko. Your favorite for this tournament is Jerome Labana. Jerome Labana is the golden boy of K1. All the publicity, I remember being there in Tokyo, all the focus of the media, all the publicity was surrounding Jerome Labana finally you know, being built up to win the K1 Grand Prix for the first time. Mark Hunt draws Jerome LeBanner for the quarterfinal deliberately. And this shocks the media because they believe that LeBanner will have his way with Hunt, who is still pretty much an unknown over in Japan. And when the media ask LeBanner, and I was there for this, when I asked him uh, two days before, hey, Jerome LeBanner hits like a, like a truck. What do you say to that? Mark Hunt actually said to the media, well, I've actually been knocked over by a car before on the road, and that didn't hurt me. So there's no way that the punches of Jerome LeBanner are going to hurt me. So at the Tokyo Dome, Mark Hunt meets Jerome LeBanner in the quarterfinals. And in the first round, Jerome LeBanner is owning Mark. Kicks, punches, everything is on point. This is kickboxing 101 from Jerome. Mark's getting a little frustrated, but he keeps his cool. And in the second round, Mark Hunt decides to suck Jerome LeBanner into a South Auckland-style street fight. He drops his hands presents his chin to Jerome and hopes, prays that Jerome will be silly enough to take the bait. And Jerome took the bait. Jerome LeBanna goes after Mark Hunt's jaw, throws caution to the wind, doesn't stick to the game plan he executed so well in the opening round. And what happens? Mark Hunt catches him. He hits him once, and that is the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of maybe the most incredible combination in kickboxing history because he hits him once and then continues to hit Jerome another 15 times. It's a 16-punch unanswered combination that eventually has Jerome out on his feet. Eyes roll back in Jerome's head. It's like he's been detonated, like his legs have been cut out from under him. He drops to the canvas. Out cold, Mark Hunt has knocked out Jerome LeBanner. Hunt is through to the semi-final round. 
In the semifinal round, he takes on Stefan Lecko, a technician. This is maybe going to be hard work for Mark Hunt. How does he stand up to the precision, the speed of Stefan Lecko? But he does it. Mark Hunt shows us that not only is he a powerful brawler, he is also a technical fighter with a very deceptive jab, a very fast right hand, and actually quite good leg kicks. He decisions Stefan Lecko in the semifinals. Then he faces another technician in Francisco Filio in the final. Again, Mark shows his technical prowess. The fight goes into an extension round. Mark, even though he's big, he's heavy. He doesn't slow down. This is his moment, and no one is going to take that away from him. He defeats Francisco Filio by extra round decision and becomes the K1 World Grand Prix champion. He receives the big check for $400,000 US, the biggest prize money in kickboxing history. Now, let me say this. A few years before, and I'm talking uh, four years before, Mark Hunt had never kickboxed, let alone fought in his life. Mark Hunt was just a big Samoan in the streets of South Auckland, the hard streets of South Auckland, who got into a fight outside of a pub one night. The bouncer saw him deck a guy on the street, not this guy out unconscious. The bouncer said to Mark, hey, buddy, do you want to try your hand in a local kickboxing fight? Mark said, all right, if I get paid, sure, why not? Mark won this local kickboxing fight, would find his way to Australia, would go under the tutelage of the great Alex Tui, Australia's first ever kickboxing world champion. And within a year and a half or so of training in kickboxing, Mark Hunt would become a K1 Oceania champion. Within a couple of years, he'd become a two-time K1 Oceania champion and become the K1 World Grand Prix champion. Jonathan, I always tell people, of all the Cinderella stories in sports history, this may be the biggest of all. When in any other sport, baseball, soccer, basketball, any sport, have you ever heard of someone having no pedigree in that sport whatsoever? And then three years later, becoming the best on the planet in that sport. It doesn't happen. Well, you look at his story and you see what he's overcome. I did have a chance to uh, check out his book and, um, I mean, and look at a couple of interviews with him before this. And you just see the incredible adversity that he overcame to even survive to the point where he became a professional fighter. You've got to read the book. You've got to check out the documentary. It was cinema released. It's on Amazon Prime, I believe, as well. It is sickening to read and to hear about what Mark Hunt's father did to him. I won't go into detail except to say that the way he beat Mark was actually the least of the terrible things that Mark's father did. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, without... It, it, yeah, right. Without elaborating on it, I'll let you read yeah. the book and watch the documentary if, if if our listeners haven't done both. But it plays out in Mark's career because when he starts that assault on Jerome LeBanner in the second round of the Grand Prix, you can see the switch flick in Mark's eyes. And in the interview you're about to hear with Mark, and the many times that I've you know spoken to Mark over the years, I've been commentating Mark since 1999, I've often asked him about this moment against Jerome, and if at that moment he saw in Jerome his father and that his response to Jerome was almost 
him envisioning his father, him finally having the ability to be able to beat up on his father and gain, you know, vengeance on his father for the horrific acts his father did to him. And, and Mark says pretty much yes. And you can see it in Mark's eyes. You see the change from normal kickboxer to a guy full of wrath, of vengeance, of hatred on the person standing in front of him. And that person at that time was Jerome Labana. And that 16-punch combination was Mark Hunt, I believe, sending a message, you know, almost to his dad from his younger self saying, this is what I wished I would have done to you back then. But you know what? It's an amazing story. Let's go to the interview now. Uh, we'll have part of the interview here. And then on our bonus episode, you'll hear the full interview with Mark Hunt. It's an amazing interview. Mark does not mince his words, folks. He talks freely openly, candidly about everything I ask him. So sit back, turn up the volume and enjoy this interview, an exclusive with the 2001 K1 World Grand Prix champion, the super Samoan, the doctor, Mark Hunt. Stand back, that man's a superstar. Now joined by the legend himself, the 2001 K1 World Grand Prix champion, Mark Hunt. Mark, great to talk to you, brother. Hey, Mike, how you doing, man? Thanks for having the show. Yeah. Mate, <laughs> so many memories come flooding back every time I speak to you. Let's let's go back to 2001 in the seaside town of Fukuoka, Japan. This was an historic night that fans will never forget. The epic fight between you and Ray Sefo in the K1 <laughs> Repercharge Charge for a place in the K1 Grand Prix. Um, mate, I've got to say, that was my first time ever commentating K1 International, and what a debut it was for me, a baptism of fire, to see what is still called the greatest K1 heavyweight fight of all time. Tell me your memories of that epic fight against Ray. Well, that was a great uh, night. That's what actually, I think that's what started my uh, rise in Japan, and that's um, that, well, that fight there, even though I lost to Ray, uh, really uh, showed the Japanese fans my fighting spirit. I got my bell rung a few times, like a few times in that fight. But, uh, you know, nonetheless, it was still, uh, I ended up uh, being the victor of the night, which is good. I lost to Ray uh, in the fight, but he couldn't continue. So, um, you know, uh, I think it was a great night for me. It started off my um, career in Japan. So, yeah. But you, you were trained by a guy called Harpe Nuranoa back then. And I remember Harpe speaking to him and saying to him, how do you take someone like Mark Hunt and make him a killer? And he said to me, Chevello, our game plan is simple. Go in there, try and take the guy's head off, try and shut down his body and get out of there as quickly as we can. Was that the game plan you guys had for Ray as well? I mean, you know that Ray could absorb enormous punishment and give it back. And Ray actually said in an interview years later that you presented a style he hadn't seen before because he didn't expect you to come out so aggressively as you did from the opening bell. Was that the game plan all along? Well, that was, yeah, the game plan was like, look, man, it was like three rounds of, of uh, K1. What else can you do in, uh, you know, nine minutes? Uh, you know, that's all you have to do is go out and go balls deep and go hard and try and or knock the person out. Because if there's if it's tournament fighting, you know, try and get a, as less injuries as you can and move on to the next fight. So, um, yeah, that's what that's pretty much what I tried to do. And, uh, you know, my gas thing didn't last that long, but um, it was a great night. <laughs> it was a great night in the end. What was the deal with the, the famous dropping of the hands and allowing each other just to tee off with three shots? That's just called uh, tiredness. <laughs> that's called tiredness. And uh, I didn't have much of a camp, to be honest. So, uh, But, yeah, that's that's all I could do. I was, I was trying my best to put Ray out of there. But, you know, Ray 
as being one of the pioneers of sport from this side of the world. So it was it was a big big ask. It was a hard ask, but um, in the end, we we lost the match, but we still got to the to the to the Grand Prix in the end. So the first time I ever met you, which was backstage at Crown Casino in Melbourne. Uh, I think it might have been before your fight against Chris Chrysopolides, and you were managed by a lovely lady, the, the dearly departed Lucy Tui back then. Yeah. And Lucy took me backstage and said, Mike, I want you to meet my new fighter, Mark Hunt, this Samoan New Zealander. And I went backstage, Mark, and I remember you sitting there in the in the dressing room. You were listening to a Walkman. Uh, for any of you kids listening who don't know what a Walkman is, please Google it. It was very important <laughs> to us uh, 25 years ago. You're listening to a Walkman, sitting there by yourself, and... Uh, Lucy introduced me to you, and I think you just looked up, you nodded and said, g'day. And Mark, I've got to be honest. I thought to myself at the time, who the hell is this big palooka? This guy's going to get knocked out by Chrysopolides. He's He's got no personality. He looks lazy. He looks overweight. Mate, none of us thought back then that you would go on to become a K1 World Grand Prix champion. Did you think back then, when you were backstage about to fight Chris Chrysopolides in front of a thousand people at Crown, that one day and not too far away, you would become the greatest heavyweight kickboxer on the planet? Could you have imagined yes. that? I always thought I was the best fighter in the world. I just needed a chance to prove it and go through that. It just, you know, that was the beginning. I think I was like 24 or something years old. I was young. Yeah, yeah I think I was maybe younger, but that that was, uh, I've always felt in my heart I was, I was a better fighter than every fight, everybody. And I've always felt this way. Um, I just, I just, I might not have looked like the best fighter in the world, but inside my mind and my heart, I was. <laughs> Mark, let's go to the 2001 K1 World Grand Prix history in the making. It's a superb eight-man lineup. And uh, you're facing Jerome LeBanner in the quarterfinals. Now, I've got to ask here, because I think you were put up as cannon fodder in the Grand Prix. If you remember back in 2001, Mark, the press conference, the pre-fight interviews, it was all Jerome LeBanner. Jerome LeBanner, all day, all night. The media focus, the promotional focus, K1's focus was all on Jerome LeBanner winning, finally, his first ever K1 World Grand Prix. And, mate, you've got to admit that, really, you were looked at as cannon fodder for Jerome in that quarterfinal. Well, I don't know. I didn't look at it that way. I just uh, I didn't feel that way. I certainly didn't uh, myself. But, you know, if that's the way they did things, that's the way they did things. I didn't see it that way. I thought I was I was excited to be there. I had a, a great training camp. I'd stopped smoking cigarettes for eight weeks. <laughs> I, was <ready> to, <laughs> I was ready to go, mate, you know. <laughs> so I don't know how they looked at it, but I looked at it differently. Now, fans will forget, this wasn't the first time you'd fought Jerome, was it? It was the second time you fought Jerome. Yes. I fought Tell Jerome us about earlier. the first one. It was in Paris. Am I correct? No, the first time was in um, Nagoya. Oh, it was Nagoya. Correct. Yes. That was the first time I fought ever in, in K1. Um, uh, in the big stage, I went from a thousand-seater crown to um, to uh, no, uh, Nagoya, I think it was. And um, it was a uh, 40,000-seater and it was huge. It just blew my mind away because... I went from a small show to to all the cameras and lights being on you. That was it was it was a real eye opener for me to be honest. How um how serious it was. So Jerome beat you in Nagoya. Now you rematch in the quarterfinals of the Grand Prix. Did yep. you feel before the fight that you had Jerome's number? I mean, did you have a specific game plan and thought it's only a matter of time before I get him? Well, you got to remember that I picked him. I picked him, and 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 um when we chose. Out of the hat, you know, there, there was, there was two spots. Really, that's taken. that's interesting, Mark, because I always thought Jerome had picked you. No, it was the opposite. I wow. Okay, there you go. There was a, there was a, another four spots on the opposite side of the draw, but uh, I think the fans actually kind of found found me kind of weird. Like this guy's gone and chosen the favorite. 
Let's talk more about the Jerome LeBanna fight because it, it's one of the most entertaining in history. First round of the fight, Mark, I felt you got beaten 10-9 by Jerome. He was landing the kicks. Um, he was timing everything to perfection. He was sucking you into his game plan. He was setting that metronome and dictating the rhythm. Second round, he starts off very strongly. But uh, then, as I've detailed many times in the past, you flicked that switch and you sucked Jerome. You baited Jerome into a good old-fashioned street fight and he took the bait. And he fell for it. And what happens after that is you land, I believe the last time I counted it, was 16. That's 16 unanswered punches that has Jerome out on his feet before he finally falls. Um, tell me about that second round and how you managed to bait Jerome into your style of brawl rather than sticking to his more technical style that he was beating you at. Well, that's pretty much like exactly what you said, you know. I lured him into a good old-fashioned Donnybrook. Is that how you call it? <laughs> <laughs> that's what you hey, said, Hey, you're right? lifting my lines now. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you said. Like, yeah, so uh, it was exactly how you, you said it. Um, I, I lured him into a rumble, a street fight, and I took advantage of them. I caught him a couple of times, and then it was days, and then I finished him off by that 16-punch uh, combination, so... You move through the semifinals, you take on Stefan Leko, and then the final you take on Francisco Filio. You win both of those by decision. Filio in the final takes an extra round, so it's a four-round win for you. What I love about this, Mark, is that if people had thought you were just a brawler, a slugger before, here you are in the semifinals and the final taking on two technicians, two guys who aren't brawlers, and you outpoint both of them. So really, it did show the full scope of your capability. Uh, who was the harder between Leco and Filio, do you feel? Um, I got more punished by um, um, Francisco. His leg kicks, if you saw my leg after the fight, they were all purple. And that was um, uh, because, you know, he was, his kicking was, um, you know, I think Francisco was a lot more technically sound. He got me a lot more with the leg kicks. They were both technically sound fighters, but I just, uh, my mentality is, you know, my fortitude, mental fortitude is, is, is really high. So, and also my mental capacity for fighting. People realize, like, you, people think that I'm just a brawler. But like you said, when you see me competing, my mind, I can, as a, as a top-end fighter, you've got to be able to cope and change things on, on, the, on the switch, uh, you know, um, in a millisecond. When you see things change or how you kind of try to make, make them move and how you want them to move, that's how things work as a top-end fighter. I wouldn't be able to do that if I was, such, if I was just a brawler. You just heard Michael's exclusive interview with Mark Hunt, and we'll air the full interview next week in all it lasts around 30 minutes, so it's a bit long to include in today's episode the whole thing, but next week we'll have the entire uncut interview. And uh, if you haven't checked out his book yet, it's Born to Fight. You can get it in a variety of formats. I got mine on Kindle, and I'm really enjoying reading about Mark Hunt's amazing life. This just in. That's news to me, man. All right, coming up, we have the news. And uh, what's going on around the world, Michael? Lots going on as K1 is set to ramp it up for 2024. Jonathan, what a year it's going to be. K1 was reborn, of course, in July. Uh, announced in September. They had their first return show, their second show in December. Um they are looking at going international again in 2024. Yes, now, we can reveal, we did reveal in a previous episode that they were looking at traditional countries they'd been in previously and some countries they hadn't been in. We can announce that uh, they are in talks with these following countries for shows in 2024. First of all, they are in talks with the USA to return to the USA. 
I am hearing, Jonathan, and it's only a rumor at the moment, I am hearing right. that there could be a U.S. show talked for Louisiana, which huh. would be a different area than K1's ever been to. Traditionally, K1 shows in the USA were either in Vegas, the famous shows at the Bellagio, or in Honolulu, Hawaii. So a K1 show in the Deep South in Louisiana would be something special. That is being a very strong rumor for maybe okay. midway through the year. We're still uh, in the rumor I, phases right now. We're so, in the rumor uh, phases. Nothing yeah, official, yeah. but we can announce they are in keen discussions with these countries. Uh, another one is Bulgaria. In very keen discussions with Bulgaria, which is another country that K1's never been to around that area. They have been to Romania, to Poland, to Hungary in the past, uh, but not to Bulgaria. Uh, Bulgaria, of course, a very strong martial arts presence. They have the Senshi shows in Bulgaria. Those Senshi shows attract K1 legends like Sam Greco, Ernesto Hus, Semi Schilt, Francisco Filio, who go over there for those Senshi shows. So they are in discussions to hold a K1 show in Bulgaria. Uh, another one is Bosnia. Uh, Bosnia has a very strong kickboxing scene led by a former K1 fighter in Javad Potorak. So I know that K1 is in uh, discussions with Javad Potorak. Uh, to do a show maybe in Bosnia in 2024. So, uh, Jonathan, that is what I'm hearing. In addition to those shows out of Europe, I'm also hearing uh, Brazil is being targeted as another potential host city for a K1 show, which would again go outside the traditional cities because K1, uh, from memory, has never hosted a full-blown show in Brazil. Uh, so strong talks are being had. Uh, this is exciting, Jonathan. Because, you know, they're saying maybe five shows in Japan, including K1 Max events. We know K1 Max will kick off the Reborn K1 Max on March 20 in Tokyo. We encourage you to book a ticket and visit on a Wednesday night, March 20 in Tokyo. But there could be as many as five international shows. Oh, and how can I forget? Of course, another country close to my heart, New Zealand. K1, I know, is in discussions with a former K1 great, Jason Sutty in New Zealand. So also look out for potentially a New Zealand show in 2024. How exciting would it be, Michael, if they found an untapped, undiscovered talent at one of these tournaments? Someone like Mark Hunt. Jonathan, they're out there. I know having spoken to Jason Sutty and Mike Angove and others over in New Zealand, they believe that they are just waiting to uncover. They believe they have other potential Mark Hunts lurking over there in New Zealand. Now, you mentioned them earlier in the show, but one place where they discovered Hongman Choi and Bob Sapp was at these regional tournaments. So there's a real possibility. And that, that's the exciting thing about the new K1. And though I can't mention any names of fighters they are talking to at the moment, uh, folks, let me tell you, when it comes to K1 max middleweight and when it comes to the heavyweights, there are some big, scary, frightening, interesting names being mentioned. That's our news for this week. More news coming on our next episode. Come on, just listen. Would you just listen? All right, let's go to our listener mailbag. This week we have a question from Paul, who lives in Perth, Australia. Michael, so he's a fellow Aussie. Paul asks, if Giorgio Petrosian had fought Buakau in K1 Max, who would have won? Well, Paul, that is a uh, terrific question. Uh, don't forget, Buakau did fight Giorgio in Sweden in a five-round fight for the WMC World Junior Middleweight title. Giorgio was 21 and coming up 
Buakal was already a two-time K1 Max champion and the reigning K1 Max champion. The fight ended in a draw. It was the only time they ever fought. So we will never know for sure who would have won a fight between the two in K1. <clears throat> Getting back to your question, however, for Giorgio to have fought Buakal in K1 Max, it would have been in 2009 when Giorgio made his full run in Japan. And let me tell you, 2009, Giorgio Petrosian was untouchable. I mean, untouchable. He wasn't just beating the likes of Andy Sauer, Jabber Askarov, Albert Krauss, and Yuli Yakamoto. He was handling them with ease. So I think Giorgio in 2009 would have beaten Buakal. Now, if you're talking Giorgio 2009 version against the 2006 version of Buakal, who beat Sato, Drago, and Sauer to win the K1 Max for the second time, well, that would have been an amazing showdown. And really, in my opinion, it would have been a coin toss. And I think that relates back to what Mike Zambides was saying to us last week, Jonathan, in that at the time in K1 Max, in any given year, anyone emerged as a champion. And in one year, it was Petrosian. Another year, it was Sauer. Another year, it was Bulacow. Another year, it was Masato. You could never say who was the greatest because you could only go year by year as to who was the greatest at that time. Sure. I was there for both of those fights um, or both of those championships, watching Buakal be crowned for the second time in 2006. And um, I didn't feel, this is just my personal feeling, I didn't feel that he went to as easy of a victory that night as Giorgio Petrosian did in 2009. I have to agree with you. I think the way that Petrosian went through 2009, it was almost like a glorified sparring session. It just it, it just proved how bloody good Giorgio Petrosian was back in 2009, 2010. Pound for pound, he really was the greatest kickboxer on the planet. Well, that does it for today's episode. We interviewed Mark Hunt and reviewed his amazing 2001 victory in the World Grand Prix. What a great story. And I do thank Mark for his time. It's always a pleasure to speak to the Super Samoan. And uh, speaking of special guests, Jonathan, our next episode. So our next episode will be the bonus episode with the full interview of Mark Hunt. Our next regular episode is going to feature another superstar interview with my old mate, Stefan Lecco. I'll be talking to Stefan all the way from Germany. And uh, you know how Mark Hunt is a man who does not mince his words, Jonathan? Let me tell you, Stefan Lecco, he will have some things to say about some certain people. I'll tell you that right now. Do not miss Stefan Lecco in our next regular episode. You know what? I never figured Stefan Lecco as a trash talker, but we'll find out. Oh, he can talk the trash, my friend. He can right. talk the trash. It's going to be great. That's going to do it for today's episode of K1 Battlecast. We thank you for listening. Tune in next week. We have the full interview with Mark Hunt. The week after that, we'll be featuring a conversation that Michael has with Stefan Lecco. And we'll get into the listener mailbag again. We got some questions. We actually had the first person write into us directly to the K1 Battlecast official email. So first prize goes to Telvin Kipapa. Um, we'll feature his question in a future episode. We've got a couple in the bag right now, and we won't be able to get to it. But just want to let you know, you can write in as well. Please check us out on X, check us out on Facebook, and of course, write us your questions and thoughts about the show. And by the way, 
wishing everyone a happy new year because our first show of the year is going to be January 5th. So please check that out. Have a great new year. See you soon.